Amen. Thou, O Lord, art shield for me. What a great song and a great line to remember today as we talk about facing opposition from Nehemiah chapter 4. Let me tell you what, moment of transparency here. We have had probably a week and a half, kind of a rough week in our family. Uh, Not that much unlike what many of you have had throughout the course of your family life. It's just kind of typical family stuff, but just kind of a rough week. And as Allie and I had opportunity to discuss and pray, and we prayed with our family and prayed with the kids over the course of this time, you know, it just became abundantly clear, abundantly clear that we are facing spiritual opposition. That's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, not only spiritual opposition, but internal opposition. When we were talking uh, terms, and we speak in terms of our own life, and we speak in terms of our church life. But, you know, it's very clear as we went to the Lord and, and prayed and discussed that it wasn't just kind of your run-of-the-mill uh, sort of a rough week, but it was a difficult week, and we knew that we were facing spiritual opposition, not unlike what many of you have faced as well. And we know it was directly due to the fact that we as a family are trying to take some specific spiritual strides as a family and as and as we're doing that was also mirroring what we're trying to do as a church as well and there's no doubt that whenever we try to take strides as a personal family as a as a family unit or as a church family that we will face spiritual opposition Nehemiah chapter 4, as we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah, brings us to a point at which they are facing spiritual opposition. As we know, over the course of of several decades, we see that the the, the captives, we see that the exiled Jews who had been sent away from Jerusalem, who had been exiled in 586 B.C. as Babylon came in and conquered uh, Jerusalem, we see that some of them were allowed to return under the leadership of Ezra and Zerubbabel. In fact, as we know, Ezra and Nehemiah um, used to be one common book. And because it's one whole epic of this story of the return of the Jews uh, to their land. And as that was happening, we see that they, were, they had returned to the land, but yet they were sitting ducks in the midst of their land because they had no way to fortify themselves. And so in steps Nehemiah. As we see throughout the first few chapters of the book of Nehemiah, in steps Nehemiah, of course, under the sovereignty of God, given the call of God to say, go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that you too might be protected. As we saw in in chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah himself was a cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world, King Artaxerxes. So he, a Jew, had the ear of the king, the most powerful man in the world. Again, a reminder of God's sovereign and ancient work. But when we are in the midst of God's work, doing God's work, we know that we will face opposition. Folks, listen to this as we put it on the screen as well. Listen and write this down. Opposition occurs when we are doing God's work. However, God will deliver the victory. Listen to this. Furthermore, facing opposition in your church life will prepare you for the opposition you face in your personal life. You see, folks, some of the principles that we draw from Nehemiah not only apply to the opposition we face as a church family, but the opposition that you will face in your individual family lives, in your individual lives, whether it be at work 
whether it be in the midst of your family, whether it be in the midst of any human relationship you find yourself in. Opposition occurs when we are God's, doing God's work. However, God will deliver the victory. And Lord God, as we come here to Nehemiah chapter 4, as we look through this great book of Nehemiah in which he was called by God, as we as a church are being called by you to walk into a new chapter of our history, Lord God, we pray that not only in the midst of chapter 4, but through the previous chapters that we've looked at and through the remainder of the book, may we draw out your timeless principles, your truths from within, that we may not just hang on our wall as pithy sayings, that we may not just uh, log in our mind as, as, as clever turns of phrases, but Lord, may we know them for what they are, that they are eternal truths of which we can live our lives by. Lord God, may we live not only by these truths, by the truth of your word, but may we live in holiness and integrity and may we live with zeal for your glory and a love as you do, a love for the lost. In the name of Jesus we do pray, amen. So the first type of opposition that we're gonna see is external opposition. This one's very clear external opposition that we see sort of personified by some of the characters, these reoccurring characters that we see in the book of Nehemiah. And starting in verse 1, it says, But so it happened when Sanballat, remember a leader of the Samaritans, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious, and he was indignant, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, his little buddy, he's kind of the guy I always picture in the movies where you have the bully and you kind of have the, dumb, the, the bully's dumb friend, you know, that kind of just chimes in and says, yeah, what he said. You know, Tobiah, he kind of chimes in and he says, and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes on it, it'll break down their stone wall. Remember, they had an investment in seeing this wall continue to lie in ruin and rubble. This was the thing, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, if you can imagine in modern warfare how important a wall and gates, fortified gates are to even modern warfare when you have mortars and such that you can launch over these gates. It's still important to fortify yourself and to hold a position. You can imagine in ancient warfare... It almost didn't matter that you said you had a city. We return to this land and they say, well, you have a city. And people kind of laugh and chuckle and say, isn't that cute? Because all it's going to take is us actually saying we want to invade. If you have no walls, if you have no fortified gates. Nehemiah knew this. At the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, one of his brethren comes back and reports to him. And Nehemiah is broken because he knows they're like sitting ducks. That's exactly what Sanballat and some of the other leaders of the countries around them knew as well. It was just a matter of time. And so they go. They go in the will of the Lord. They go in the sovereignty of God. And as God is one that moves even human kings, human actors to do and to bend to his will, he moves in the heart of Artaxerxes to send Nehemiah back to the land, not only with his blessing, but also with his resources. He goes back to work to rebuild the wall. But as we see it here, these actors, these players, these ones that have great investment in seeing this not be built, they're mocking them. They're mocking them. And they're discouraging them. So these two characters here and the characters that we see throughout the book, they're emblematic, they're illustrative 
of what we know in our lives and throughout the history of humanity are the external opposition that we face. It's Satan and his forces. Satan and his demons, those that do his will and do his bidding. And Satan, his number one goal, his number one accomplishment, the number one thing, his mission that he drives towards is to thwart the glory of God and the mission of redemption of mankind, the very mission of God himself. That's what he works to do. And so at every turn, he will seek to thwart the plans of God and to seek to thwart mankind that works on behalf of their God. So if we are facing, folks, if we are facing in our individual lives and we're facing in our church life opposition from the enemy, it means that we are right where we need to be. We are on mission. You see, unlike God himself, unlike Yahweh, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He is, he knows a great deal, but he is not omniscient. He is, nor is he omnipotent, meaning he is not all-powerful. He is powerful, but he is not all-powerful. And because of that, he has limited resources at his disposal. And like any good field general, he's going to move his resources. He's going to move his resources to his greatest threat. And so any sort of local church or any sort of believer that's not a threat to the mission of Satan, which is to thwart the mission of God, which is his glory and the saving of mankind, if we're not a threat to that, we're not going to face opposition. But if we are on mission for the glory of God and we're on mission to make disciples, you can bet that you will and we will face opposition from the enemy. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. So how do, they, how do they work? How does he work in our lives? We see a couple of ways that the enemy works in our lives. Things personified by these right here. First of all, in these first three verses that we read, we see discouragement. Discouragement. They were mocking the Jews. They were saying, there's no way you're going to get that done. And these walls, whatever sort of walls you think you can build, a fox will jump on top and they'll fall down. Discouragement. You see, one of the great goals that we're setting for ourselves, I mentioned earlier in, in, in our time of prayer, is that we're setting a goal for ourselves of 500 evangelistic breakthroughs. And so that may mean for you in a particular relationship, take and imagine with me a, a coworker that you have. Maybe you've never had any sort of spiritual conversation with a coworker. If your coworker, you overhear in a conversation, they talk about their mother is sick and their mother is ill, and you say to them, would it be okay if I pray with you now about your mother? That's a breakthrough. That's a breakthrough. That is a tremendous step along the way, hopefully to get to the point where you can verbally share the gospel. What if a lost neighbor, you have them into your home. You have them into your home. You invite them, or maybe it's a lost coworker to your home. That is a significant breakthrough. Again, that you are specifically walking down the path to eventually get to share the good news of the gospel with them. Maybe it's a waiter or a waitress at, at a restaurant. You know you may never see them again, and right there, you share the good news of the gospel with Jesus Christ with them. That's a breakthrough. We're setting that goal for ourselves as a church. That over the next 12 months, we are going to see 500 evangelistic breakthroughs. And when we move down to the other end, we're going to have some really creative ways that we kind of rally together and celebrate those breakthroughs uh, that, that we accomplish as individuals and as a church body. But let me tell you what. We will face, from the enemy, there's no doubt about it, we'll face discouragement. We'll face discouragement. As we continue on, we also see that a great tool of the enemy is 
confusion. Confusion. Let's continue reading in, here in verse 4. Nehemiah, indignant with righteous anger, says, Oh, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Don't cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. He knows where to go. It's a foreshadowing of what we're going to see in just a minute of how he responds to it. He, he responds with prayer. He knows that it is God that must win the day. And so in verse 6, he says, so we built the wall. The entire wall was joined up together half its height for the people had a mind to work. Again, we see right here, pray, prayer and diligence. We see a foreshadowing of where we'll camp out later. And now what happened, verse 7, when Sanballat when Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And listen to what they did. And all of them conspired to come together and attack Jerusalem and what create confusion. Confusion. You see, oftentimes when we think about Satan, we think about demons, we sort of get this 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 sort of Hollywood ideal of what satanic uh, movement, satanic work is in the life of individuals. We get this sort of idea that Satan is all about kind of making people's heads spin and sort of in vomiting pea soup and elevating, you know, levitating people and make them crawl on the wall. And that's the sort of ideal that, that, that the world can get of what Satan does. But some of the greatest work, in fact, the greatest work of Satan is more like espionage than it is direct warfare. You see, some of the greatest work that Satan does is to create confusion. Some of the greatest work that Satan does is to put doubt in our minds. Isn't that the way, the exact way that he worked against humanity from the beginning of mankind with Adam and Eve? Say, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? You see, that's the way that the enemy works in our lives. He works not with direct warfare necessarily, but with espionage. So how did he respond? We know that we will face external opposition from the enemy, from the world. It will come in the form of discouragement. It will come in the form of confusion. So how do we respond? How do we respond to it? Again, a foreshadowing of where we'll camp out on our third and final point. But here's the response. Here's the response. First of all, what Nehemiah did, he didn't pout about it. He prayed. He prayed. He didn't pout that's the thing when discouragement or when, when attack, when opposition comes our way as individuals or as a church family, we can't sit and pout. We must pray. We must get on our knees and lift up before the Lord the desires of our heart. Listen to this. Write this down. It'll be on the screen. Prayer is our primary weapon. It's not our last resort. Do you understand that? Prayer is our primary weapon. It is not our last resort. So whether you're facing opposition in your individual life or as we're talking about specifically throughout this sermon and throughout this entire sermon series, as a church body, prayer is our primary weapon. That's why we're joining our hearts together every Thursday up until the point in which we move and we, we, we accomplish the first stage of this launch, this relaunch, and moving downstairs or moving down to the other end and starting this, starting this goal of these 500 breakthroughs. We are joining together in prayer. It is a primary weapon, not a last resort. But we also see in verse 6 that it requires persistence. Our persistence, our ability in our individual lives and us as a church body, our persistence is fueled by our prayer. 
See, that's the wonderful thing that we see in verse 9, and we see it echoed in 4, 5, and then 6 as well, is that Nehemiah had the order right. It's not a matter about trying to be persistent and trying to face the opposition head on without prayer. It is going to to God in prayer first and saying, God, give me the courage, give me the diligence, give me the persistence that I need to face this opposition. Prayer and persistence. So not only do we see the first thing, external opposition, but we also see internal opposition. And it comes in the form of disappointment. And as we'll see here throughout the middle of this this point here, that the enemy, the external opposition, the enemy, Satan, is really good at pushing our buttons. Those places that we're weak and we're susceptible to own internal opposition, whether it be our individual lives, us as a church body, he pushes upon those buttons. So that eternal opposition comes in the form of disappointment. And it often comes in the form of fatigue. Look at this. Let's read in verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. Folks, anytime we turn over a new leaf in our life, anytime we're walking through a new chapter uh, of this church's life, it's going to be a lot of hard work. It's going to be some difficult work as we are working through God's call for this new chapter in our church life. And it will feel as some, sometimes as though our strength is failing. He says, so the strength of the labor is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to even build the wall. You see this rubbish, if you can imagine. This was rubbish that had existed from 586 B.C. If you remember kind of turning the clock back in the history of Judah, when they were conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians broke down their wall and their fortifications, and that rubbish, that rubble was still lying there. Still lying there. And it was a reminder to them of their former glory. So they not only, when they had to go out to work, had to look at this rubble as a reminder of the former glory, but it was also a practical impediment to wherever it was that God was leading them next. You see, they had to remove the rubble just to get back to even. Just to get back to the point where they could build a wall. Now folks, when we think about that, We draw a principle of that and we draw it into our present day as a church. Folks, we have to understand why why we are making some of the the changes that we're making. We have to understand why we're at the point that we are where we're having to make some changes that are difficult decisions to make. Folks, we have been in a a multi-decade pattern of decline. We have to just stem the tide just to get to even. Before we can take off again. What that means is that we have to make difficult decisions. Did you realize in our country, 4,000 churches a year close their doors. 4,000 churches die a year. In our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, 1,000 churches a year close their doors, never to open them again. That's sad. That's sad. So we are walking through, we are walking through a calling right now that is a difficult calling. The calling to church revitalization is an extremely difficult calling. And it's one that some often don't ever take on because of the fact that it's so difficult. But folks, I think you, just like me, want to make sure that we don't end up one of these days as one of those statistics, one of those 1,000 churches, one of those 4,000 churches 
that close their doors, never to open them again. But we have to realize there will be some things that have to be removed. There will be some things that intrinsically, uh, at one day, maybe it's a program that's really near and dear to your heart. Maybe it's a ministry that's really near and dear to your heart that in its day, it was a wonderful ministry. It was a wonderful program, something that really accomplished what it needed to accomplish. But now it's something that has to be removed so that we can begin to build again. There will be some of those times. And with that, the enemy will prey upon us, prey upon that disappointment. So not only do we see that disappointment, <clears throat> but we also see pressure. Pressure. Verse 11 says, and our adversary said to us, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into the, to their midst and kill them and cause their work to cease. So they were plotting behind their back and they said, we're going, they won't know, we're going to surround them, we're going to pressure them from all sides, they won't know. And so it was in verse 12, when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they came and told us that, 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 that these warring factions came and spoke to them ten times saying, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So those Jews that were living on the outskirts of Jerusalem nearest to these warring factions, the factions would come to them and send emissaries quite often as a, as a method of intimidation and pressure. And they would say, you realize you don't know when it's coming. Wherever you turn, you may not be able to turn in the right way. It's coming. It's coming. That internal pressure, that internal pressure that is compounded by external pressure itself. You see, Satan will press our buttons. Satan will press our buttons. There's no doubt as we begin to walk through this new chapter in the life of Metropolitan, Satan will push our buttons. He will find our weaknesses and he will exploit those weaknesses. Disappointment. Pressure. So where does the good news come? Where does the good news come? The good news comes here in this Final portion that we see here in verses 13 through 23 as we look at diligence, diligence in opposition, diligence in opposition. Therefore, I position the men, verse 13, behind the lower parts of the wall at their openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, with their spears, and with their bows. And I looked and I arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Listen, remember the Lord, remember, 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 remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened. When our enemies had heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears and shields and bows and armor and the leaders were behind the house of Judas. And not only did they pray, but they were diligent and they planned for this under the guidance of God. Those who built on the wall, those who carried the burdens, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. So in one hand they had a hammer and the other hand they had a sword. They were ready to go at a moment's notice. And every one of the builders has his own sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And then I said to the nobles, the rulers, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever, listen to this, wherever 
wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You see, he calls the people in the first part of that section to remember. To remember. What do we need to remember as we're thinking about remembering as an individual and remembering as a church body that is walking through a new phase, a new stage in the life of our church? What do we need to remember? First of all, we need to remember that this fight is personal. That this fight is personal. You need to understand that some of the changes that we're making, some of the things that we're doing as a church body and the opposition that we will face, we are doing these things and we will face personal opposition because some of these changes are part of a personal fight. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard in the midst of just conversation over the last four years that my children or my grandchildren used to go to church here, right? My children, my grandchildren used to go to church here. Let me tell you, some of the changes we're making are difficult. And none of the changes that we're making are silver bullets. But for some, that it may be difficult, some of the changes that we're making. Let it give you encouragement. May it give you encouragement that the things that we're doing, some of the changes that we're making are some changes that are necessary. Some changes that may move the ball a little bit further down the road to being the type of church that your children, your grandchildren may want to attend. The fight is personal. Secondly, we have to remember our collective strength. We have to remember our collective strength. One of the great Western movies that I really love is a movie called Open Range. It came out probably about 10 years ago or so. Kevin Costner, Robert Duvall, and uh, they're they're open grazers grazing upon land that they just want all of the, the land just to be open for anybody to graze. But they're going up against a landowner that is wanting to limit the land in which the cattle can graze his cattle only on this particular land. Well, they get into a fight with this guy, and lo and behold, not only is the fight directly with them, but the, the townspeople of this nearest town are bullied by this guy constantly. They're afraid of this guy. They're afraid of this guy. Well, towards the end of the movie, there, there's a showdown. It's a typical Western. There's a showdown between Kevin Costner, Robert Duvall, and the forces of this, this landowner. And as the tide begins to turn in the favor of Kevin Costner, Robert Duvall, and the people, the townspeople suddenly get their courage. And they begin to realize their collective strength. They realize that they don't need to be afraid of this guy anymore. It is their collective strength that they have together that will win the day, and they do just that. Folks, remember, we have collective strength. You see, he tells them, Nehemiah tells them to rally together, rally together. You see, that is why an army will, 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 will even undertake a flanking maneuver as it is, a flanking maneuver when they come around the side, when they come around the side and directly taking on uh, an army. Not only do, go to, do they go to their weak spot, but they're going to a point in which they can hopefully divide the army. You see, that's what the enemy will seek to do with us. The enemy will seek to divide us and we have to rally together and remember our collective strength. We also have to remember our mission. We also have to remember our mission. You know, if you were with us about a year and a a half ago when we started walking through this period of vision casting, 
One of the things that we did on a Sunday night early on in those meetings, one of the things that we did early on in, in one of those meetings is that we watched a documentary, a documentary that paralleled changes that didn't take place in the Kodak company with changes that weren't taking place in churches today. And as walked through this documentary, one of the one of the, the executives of the Kodak company at the time said, you could have never imagined in the middle of the 20th century that the Kodak company would have ever gone bankrupt. He said, you could have never imagined that the Kodak company would have ever gone bankrupt. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. And one of the, one of the kind of saddest moments and missed opportunities is that this executive went to his house and kind of went into his own study and he pulled out a a prototype of a digital camera. It was the very first prototype of a digital camera that came to his desk. He took it to the other executives, took it to the president and such, the company, and said this is, you know, basically explain what a digital camera is. And they refused to take on the digital camera revolution. They said, we are a film company. We're not a digital camera company. We're a film company. And that's exactly what led to their demise. That's exactly what led to their bankruptcy is they weren't able to change with the times. They weren't able to change and get on board with the digital revolution. You see what happened is they forgot what their mission was. They, were, they forgot what they were selling. You see the Kodak company, the Kodak company wasn't selling film. That's not what they were selling. The Kodak company was never selling film. They were selling memories. They were selling memories. And so whether that, those memories, whether that sale, what they were selling came in the form of film cameras or digital cameras, it shouldn't have mattered. What they were selling was memories. Folks, as a church, as a church body, our mission is not preservation of this building. Our mission is not preservation of certain programs. Our preservation is not our, our mission is not preservation of ourselves. Our mission is to make disciples in whatever era we find ourselves in and in whatever way we need to do that. That is the mission of our church and any local church. So they remembered their collective strength. They remembered the fight was personal. They remembered their mission. And they also, as you'll see earlier in this list of remembrances, they remembered the Lord. I love this last phrase right here at the end of verse 20. This last phrase, he tells them, rally together. Rally together. Rally to us there. And he says, why should we do it? Because our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Folks, we are moving into, sometimes can be a scary time. But we're moving truly into an exciting time. We're moving into an exciting time as the next chapter in the history of this church. It's exciting because God has called us there. And we have to remember as difficult as it may be at times in opposition that we may face from the enemy, in opposition that we may face internally, that God is going before us and God will fight for us. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to remember that. Help us to remember that, Lord God. That as we move into this next season, it is an exciting season of our church life. But we know nothing of what we do is a silver bullet. We know that there will be bumps in the road. We know that there will be times that it will be one step back before we take two steps forward. 
we know that those times are coming. But Lord, anytime we come to a place in which any organization, any church needs to make significant change, Lord, we know there will be some difficulty. But God, we pray that you would, as Nehemiah called the people, you would call us to rally together as a church family. God, that you would help us to remember what our mission is. Our mission is to make disciples however best, whatever methodology we need to do that, however best we must do that in the day and age in which we find ourselves. And God, help us to remember as we rally together that you are the one that will go and fight before us. Lord God, I pray now, as we enter into this time of invitation and response, Lord God, there's a great fight that's brewing in the midst of individual hearts and lives that are even seated here today. Maybe for years, you've been speaking into their hearts and they've been fighting against your Holy Spirit that's speaking to them about repenting and giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I'd pray that this would be the day that they would surrender unto you. And in the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.